Well, good morning. It's great to be with you again. I'm so glad that my sons were not approached for imitations of their dad because that could have been brutal. This past week, I had a couple of experiences which uh, together, I think, show us how to approach today's passage. Uh, The first of these experiences was a visit to a, a very nice, very exclusive club in the city, and I had to get on my very best suit and uh, travelled into town. It wasn't the Tattersalls Club, so it's okay. And, and it was a very enjoyable lunch at the club. Uh, one of those ones that went on long into the afternoon. The food was amazing. The company was great. The artworks on the wall were exceptional. But for the whole time that I was there, I could not help feeling I did not belong. I could never belong. I would never feel comfortable following all of the rules and the regulations of the club and particularly paying the fees. As nice as it all was, I was an outsider looking in and I very quickly ruled myself out of ever being a member of that club. Second experience this past week, which helps us to approach today's passage, was a phone call I had with my brother. Uh, I, I call up my brother with, with a question, and, and I'm in that part of the conversation where you're, if you know how these phone calls work, you're kind of framing context, you're building up to your question, and I say something like, hey, remember back in January when we agreed to do such and such? Well, I was wondering what you thought of this idea. And immediately, my brother interrupts with, wait a minute, we never agreed to do anything like that in January. No way. What world are you in? And I It's a very tense conversation that I now have with my brother. Um, Throughout this conversation, uh, my brother and I, who are intensely loyal to each other, we were always going to resolve the issue, right? We, we, We pushed back, we clarified, we explained, and then we agreed on a plan. And then we worked out what the rules would be going forward. No big deal. Why? Because we're brothers, We're family, right? So unlike me looking at the rules of the club and deciding whether or not I wanted to belong, my brother and I began by belonging to the family and then figuring out how the rules would work. Our point is this. When we come to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, we're not looking at the rules of the club and deciding whether or not we want to be in or not. Rather, because we're family, we're committed to working through the implications of belonging to Jesus Christ. Because we belong, we're working out how to behave. No matter how uncomfortable that conversation may become, we're going to get through this one together. That's pretty much how the passage in Ephesians 5 begins. So hopefully you've got a Bible open in front of you on a device or wherever you are, whatever you've got there, and have a look with me at verse 5 of Ephesians 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Literally, Paul says Christians should be imitators of God. 
as dearly loved children. Now, I'm told that kids that really love their dad want to imitate them. Deep down, they want to be just like dad. Even the kids that don't want to be just like dad turn out just like dad. It's a thing. They want to be imitators of their father. Shout out to all the dads. So that's verse 1. The point is really clear. We are dearly loved children of God. And we imitate him by walking in the way of love. Uh, You might notice the repetition of that metaphor of walking. Uh, It's it's traced it back to 4 verse 1. The way that we live our life is, is our walking. And our walking demonstrates our family likeness. We do it this way because we belong. What happens next then in Ephesians 5 is that Paul makes explicit exactly how we are to walk in the way of love, in the same way that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us on the cross. And Paul identifies, I think, four, count them, four particular issues. And these four issues actually keep on reappearing in all of Paul's letters. So we know he views these as very important. And those four issues are sex, compromise, greed, and our speech. And each one of these cans of worms really requires a sermon all of their own. And we don't have that opportunity. So here's what we're going to do instead. Today, I'm just going to open up each of the cans of worms and invite us to have a look in and see what the key issues are. I'm going to close them back up. I'm going to put them on the shelf. And if you would like to explore any of those cans of worms a little further, I want to invite you to a Zoom meeting on Monday night, tomorrow night. Okay, 7.30, Ness Hughes and I will be there to answer all of the questions that come in on the question phone. So the St Andrews text phone is there for questions. We'll take questions even on Monday night through the text phone, so they'll be anonymous, and we can explore all of the issues that kind of tumble out of each of these cans of worms together. But let's open up the first can of worms, right? The first topic that Paul wants to talk about in chapter 5 is sex. Um, 5 verse 3, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. If you skip down again to verse 5, you see the word immoral there. It's pretty much the same word. It's the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. Okay? We want to ask, what exactly is porneia? Porneia is a very broad umbrella term for any sexual activity outside of what God's word commands. There are many more specific terms that Paul could have used. For example, he could have used the word for adultery, any sexual relationship outside of marriage. He could have used the word for homosexuality. He could have used the word for lust. But instead, he chooses this umbrella term, uh, which includes pornography and those other issues as well. So of what kind of sexual activity does the Bible approve? We'll refine this a little bit more in our Zoom discussion tomorrow night. But for now, we should know that God gifts consexual sexual intercourse by a man and a woman within the context of their marriage. He says this is good. He blesses that couple exclusively with that gift and the gift of each other. And anything outside of that situation, notice the word consensual there, anything outside of that is porneia. 
to be clear, porneia is not talking about attraction or orientation. Attraction to something or to someone is not a sin. There are many healthy attractions. As a married man, I find myself attracted to people other than my wife. Certainly not as much, but it's a form of attraction nonetheless. The issue is, of course, what I do with that attraction. Porneia is when I get that bit wrong. Back in Ephesians 4, 22 and 23, Paul urged us to put off the old nature and to put on the new nature. A little different to Mal's illustration last week, in practice, we don't fully get the old smelly jumper off before we start pulling on that new jumper from Kathmandu. Practicing the new nature actually helps us put off the old nature. So to help with putting off Pornaya, let me encourage you, if you're married, to be a great lover of your spouse or a compassionate and loyal best friend as you, as you appropriately express your good and God-given desires for intimacy. That was the lid going back on that first can of worms. And we can talk some more tomorrow night if that's something that you'd like to do. Going outside of God's word is actually unloving. You see that there. That's the implication of verse 2 of our passage. Second can of words. I'll pull that one off the shelf. Let's open up, have a look inside. This one, verse 3, any kind of impurity. So I'm in 5, verse 3. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. And then Paul, as he is doing, he kind of repeats it again in verse 5, same list almost. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Quick aside, verse 5 here is not referring to salvation by good works or you know, the converse, actually, condemnation by doing bad things, right? The immorality, the impurity, and the greed, which are all analogous to idolatry, these act as indicators, as evidence of our faith, a saving experience of God's grace through faith always results in changed lives. Paul's inference here is that no transformation, continuing exactly the same in porneia, impurity and greed, in the long run, that would lead us to wonder, just to wonder about the reality of salvation for that person. The Bible's boundaries here do not apply to people who are not Christians. Let me be clear on that. These ways of love are specifically for Christians as they grow in maturity. So let's look at this word impurity in verses 3 and 5. It simply refers to a contamination. Uh, let's imagine we have a nice glass of water and then we add some sludge straight from the sewer into the top it is no longer pure, it is impure. It's not really rocket science, is it? It's an easy one. From a religious perspective, though, impurity would specifically mean mixing the profane and the holy. Okay? 
let's dig a little bit more into the life of Ephesus, some context here. What might Paul mean when he calls the Ephesians to reject impurity? Here's a possibility. The city of Ephesus was famous for its temple of Artemis. We know from Acts chapter 19 how much the Ephesians loved to worship their goddess, Artemis, who was actually a form of the Roman god Diana. And uh, in polite company, we might describe Artemis as a love goddess whose annual festival uh, was very popular amongst young men and women, particularly young men and women who were interested in the blessing of fertility and prosperity. So impurity in Ephesus would include Christians mixing some worship of Artemis into their worship of Jesus Christ. This kind of sludge in the clean water was ultimately a compromise with the local culture. Now, I'm not sure how many of us here today are worshipping in the temple of Artemis, but I do wonder how much we might be tempted to compromise with our culture. Where would we be mixing the sludge in with the pure water of Jesus Christ? Now, I want to say... Not everything in our culture is bad. Not at all. But I am saying that being a Christian is going to mean not participating in some activities that our local culture thinks is just fine. Even great. They might celebrate it. As a result, Christian people, we should expect to be criticized, even persecuted, certainly misunderstood, because we don't buy into everything that our local culture approves of. For example, um, our culture has a particular view of human desires. Uh, It says, if I desire something, if I'm attracted to something or to someone, then my desire must be satisfied and certainly never questioned. Now, a Christian view of humanity says, you know what? We're fallen. We are no longer perfect, but we're kind of confused. Our our desires and our ways have kind of mutated or become unbalanced to the point where I demand their fulfillment. It must be so regardless of the cost. Here's an example. My good desire to build a secure life for my family can be distorted. It's a good desire, right? I want to build a secure life for my family. That could be distorted so that it becomes greed or even oppression. Uh, you know, I want that thing. I want that house. I want that land. I want that weapon so that I can protect my family. They'll be safer as a result. Now, I really want that thing so much, and I don't care if it belongs to you. I'm just going to grab it for myself because it will protect my family. Money buys security, right? I need more and more and more and more money to buy security for my family. And if I share any of it with you, well, that'll make my family weaker. You'll become stronger and that'll be a greater risk to my family. You can see how distortion works, can't you? This same distortion of a good desire to protect my family underlies the infiltration of our fallen culture into so many aspects of our Christian living. 
And maybe we've become so used to living among a people who have a different foundation that we might compromise the way of love, God's way. It's possible to get so used to mixing water mixed with sludge that we don't even notice it. What's the flip side? What's the flip side of compromise and impurity? What are we going to put on to help us with the putting off? I want to encourage us to rejoice and delight in our purity. Be glad that we totally belong to God who loves us with such a passion that he will tolerate no rival. When our culture celebrates debauchery and drunkenness, can we celebrate the good gifts of God instead? Can we open a good bottle of wine and give thanks to God for it and drink it responsibly? When we choose an evening with friends, can we celebrate the goodness of those friendships and actually take delight in them as a gift? Second can of worms on the shelf. We open up the third one. The third thing that Christians will reject in order to walk the way of love is greed. Uh, Once again, we're still in verse 3 and repeating it again in verse 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Verse 5, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. What specifically is greed? We're looking at that good old-fashioned word that used to be translated covetousness or avarice. It means grasping, hungering for, lusting after more and more and more of something that's not even rightly ours. It has actually embedded in it the idea of extortion, grasping at something at the expense of somebody else, taking something that is not rightly mine. That's why the greedy person is an idolater. Along with the sexually immoral and the impure compromiser, they've put their desire for something else above their commitment to God. So greed here is actually on the same rung of the sin ladder as porneia. Turns out there's only one rung on the ladder. It's all the same. I wonder, though, for us here in our context and in our culture, if greed hasn't become something of an acceptable sin, one that we might turn a blind eye to quite easily, we should make no mistake. Greed is bad, and it is idolatry. I want to make a very important distinction now. Wealth and greed are not the same thing. It's not necessarily a sin to be wealthy. But it is possible that our wealth could be a product of our greed. You can see inside your own heart way better than I can. I'm not going to pretend to. Can I ask you to ask God to search your heart with you and see if there's any greed in there hiding under a bunch of stuff that you've worked so hard to get? And then be generous. Be generous with your stuff. 
Be generous with your time. Be generous with yourself. Do you know how Jesus measures generosity? He measures generosity as how much you've got left over after you've finished giving. That's what he says of the widow in the temple who gave two little copper coins. She had nothing left when she'd finished giving. She was the most generous person. All right, third can of worms. Let's open the fourth one. Let's have a quick peek inside this one. The fourth way where our walking must reflect our heavenly Father is in our speech. And in fact, this is the area that, that Paul gives most attention to in the passage. So we're in verse 4 now. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Pretty straightforward command, uh, along with the command in verse 6 there, to beware of deceitful and empty words. The word obscenity here, pretty straightforward. Verse 4, talking about filth, dirt, shameful stuff. And the funny thing with language is that the legalist wants to argue about which particular words are in and which words are out for the Christian. And if you have that conversation, it's going to end up in a silly place because words have different meanings depending upon their context, depending upon the culture in which they're spoken, depending upon the way in which they're spoken. My simple rule when it comes to what I'm going to say is to remember that God our Father is holy, holy, holy. And he is a part of every conversation that I have. And I let that determine what I'm going to say and what I'll choose not to say. Our words matter, actually. And they reveal... I think, our inward transformation as much as any other of our behaviours. You see, it is the Holy Spirit himself who evidences his work by the way that we speak. We can encourage others and build each other up amazingly, simply through our words. The reverse is also true. Uh, Paul follows up his command in verse 18 and following, talking about, well, what do I do? Thanksgiving is the go, right? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And here's how the Spirit's filling will evidence itself. There are a number of ways that follow, and look forward to next week's sermon on this one as well. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Words have such power. Use your words to build up, to encourage, and actually to bring glory to God in what you say. Walking in the way of love involves a discipline and a focus for all that we say. There goes the fourth can. It's on the shelf. Looking forward to checking inside them later on. What we've seen this morning in Ephesians 5, 1-20 is that Paul is not setting out a bunch of rules and if we like them enough and uh, if we agree to abide by them, we're allowed into the club. Instead, because we are family, we are the beloved children of God, we long to be changed so that we can imitate God our Father. We want to work through this together. We know we're all in a process. This is a journey We're here to help each other as we continue this road. 
Nevertheless, there may be some this morning who are hearing this, uh, whether in our building or whether online, and you just think, I'm just so dispirited, I'm so angry, I'm so upset. If you feel that, can you please reach out to the St. Andrew's pastoral team? We would love to be able to walk with you through this journey. We would love to help you. Just say, hey, I want to talk about the sermon. That'll be code and we'll be all good to talk. Um, Ness and I would love to hear from you. The whole staff would love to hear from you. We want to grow. We want to be transformed by Jesus. We want to be mature in Christ. And so as we've looked at this passage, we've kind of seen that there are really a list of don'ts. This is one of those passages that's full of don'ts, but they each have a flip side. We are to put off porneia and put on purity. We are to put off compromise and to put on fidelity. We are to put off greed and we are to put on generosity. We are to put off filthy speech and instead put on thanksgiving. Psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. As Paul says in those first two verses, to live this way is actually the way of love. The same kind of love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. That's how we imitate God our Father. Let's pray together. Now, God and Father, we thank you that we can always look to you, to your Son, by your Spirit, and know what love really is. We long that we would reflect and demonstrate your quality of love in the culture in which we live and uh, among our friendships with each other. Please will you change us more and more by the work of your spirit. Amen.